This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. This is podcast episode 216. We are closing out this 2021 year. It's been a weird one, um, but we are sticking with an international theme right now. Last week, we talked to Braupinta in Poland, and this week, we're talking to Lars Marius Garschol from Norway. Uh, author of Historical Brewing, uh, Lars last year blew open the canon on, well, I shouldn't say that. I say you helped expand brewers' knowledge of the canon of farmhouse brewing with your book, Historical Brewing, um, looking at farmhouse approaches to brewing that were not necessarily considered within the, the canon previously. I shouldn't say not considered, but lesser known and not uh, covered. Through this episode, we're going to talk about that kind of expanded canon of farmhouse brewing. I should also mention that Lars has signed on with the magazine for the next year to take over the style school department that Jeff Allworth had been penning. We're going to focus on different farmhouse brewing approaches over this coming year in the magazine. And so if you're not a subscriber, to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, you should subscribe right now so that you can make sure to get Lars's in-depth approaches to these various farmhouse brewing uh, techniques and traditions over the course of this coming year in the magazine. Before we start the conversation, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer, G&D Chiller's new micro-channel condensers. G&D's micro-channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions. Use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks and lower global warming potential. G&D Chillers engineers are committed to green technology design, developing a more energy efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact GD Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is sponsored by BSG Craft Brewing. Explore a whole universe of hop sensory with unique varieties like Cashmere, Comet, Triumph, El Dorado, and many more. Sourced directly from growers and processed at BSG's FSSC certified facility in Yakima to bring you only the very best hops from farmer to fermenter. For contracting spot sales and more info, reach out to them at Let's Talk Hops at bsgcraft.com. So Lars, give us background on your history in beer, how you got to where you are, what uh, sparked that interest in beer scholarship and brewing scholarship, um, and uh, you know how you have gone down this historical, uh, you know, traditional approach to documenting and sharing these brewing traditions. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a long story. Um, I mean, the first step was just becoming interested in beer, uh, which was. I had uh, had a friend who was into it very early, and um, he was kind of the person that alerted me to, you know, the possibility of beer being more than just pale lager. Uh, let's put it that way. I started reading up on it because it's I don't know it's the kind of person I am. I'm I'm curious about things. I want to learn, um, and it was a very rewarding subject because. Um, the beer is more than just the taste and the chemistry and the process because, you know, it's in a kind of a social context. So there's there's always other things touching the beer as well. Um, and that meant that 
learning more was always uh, was always very rewarding. Uh, and I started using rate beer uh, at one point, uh, which got into this you know kind of ticking behavior after a while. Uh, but it pushed me into uh, really analyzing the flavors, which was good for me. And it, uh, you know, once you kick off this kind of completist thing, you want to check every country and you want to try everything. And then suddenly there was this, this trip to Lithuania and, and uh, I go down into the bar and I ask them, so can you recommend something? And they give me a beer and I'm like, what is this? Uh, and I was lucky uh, that because of the reading and using right beer and training as a homebrew judge, I, I could tell, even though nobody could tell me anything about the beer, I could tell that this was not normal beer. Uh, and that was kind of the, uh, when I stumbled into the rabbit hole, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, in, in that sense, so, you know, so what was the beer in Lithuania that kicked it all off for you? And where did you go from there? Well, <laughs> I guess uh, the first step was just straight into the brick wall. Uh, because nobody had anything useful to say about these beers at all. Uh, even even when they knew English, which they often didn't, uh, you know, you ask them, well, wh where does this flavor come from? Is it, is it the hops or... And waiter looks at you. And then, what is hops? And you realize that, oh, this ain't going to work. So... <laughs> Uh, it was several trips actually before I uh, I figured it out, and in in the end, it was a brewery tour. It turned out there was a guy who was running a business doing uh, Lithuanian beer tourism, and so I tagged along with him. And we uh, the third stop on that trip was uh, this guy who learned to brew from his dad, uh, inherited the both the brew kit and the yeast from his dad. And he baked the beer in an oven. And when you when he talked about you know his approach to beer brewing and the way that he thought about it, there was no reference to the world of beer that you know you would find in a standard beer book. There was nothing. Uh, he 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 was brewing as if you know IPA and porter and pale lager had never existed. Uh, and and so that's kind of when I realized what it was that was going on. Since I knew this wasn't in the books, that made it really, really exciting. I, I could explore this all by myself, right? Right. And you also have to build an idea of who's doing what, what all of those variations are. I mean, you know, there's a very like taxonomic approach that you have to take to try to cover that. Uh, you know, what did that process now you you know you you've figured out that brewers here are doing this and creating this beer that seem you know that's it's beer it's connected to this world of brewing even though it's different um but they're also influencing each other and passing this tradition down but there are also these fine points of difference between them yeah you know how do you then create this network idea of who's doing what and uh, and start tracking down all of these leads so I was doing, it's kind of been, you could say, a three-pronged approach. So one is uh, meeting people or phoning them and, and interviewing them. So that's one source of data. And then um, 
there is a Norwegian book from 1969, which is a a professional ethnographic text on on uh, traditional brewing in Norway, and it you know had a very systematic approach, and and it also said that there was a questionnaire that was sent out in Norway to 182 respondents back in 19, the 1950s. So I got hold of the answers to that, and that was, of course, a lot of information. And then you start finding uh, specific accounts and books and so, you know local history journals and this sort of thing. Uh, but uh, as you were sort of hinting, you, you collect this, and it's like, what does it actually tell me? And... I was reading, you know, other scholarship on this, and it was so vague. They say, you know, okay, people use this herb and they use that herb, and you and there's uh, a lot of talk specifically, for example, about sweet gale and Latin uh, Mirica gale, but it wasn't showing up in the material. And I was like, I need to, I need to write something on this to show people that it's wrong. And then, but then you, I realized. Well, if I just say I'm not finding it, and then you have like this, you know, this stack of books saying it's a very common herb, like who are people going to listen to? Uh, so what I started doing was uh, actually to make a database. So you have a primary source, you put it into the database, and then you go, okay, so all of the herbs that they mention, you register those. Like even if they're not certain, you just do all of them. Uh, and then you make a table of the results, and that's what I put into the historical brewing techniques book that starts the herbs and spices chapter. And then the answer comes out by itself. It's like even when you're, you know, absurdly generous, and anyone who's ever mentioned the possibility of America Gale being used, you get to six percent across Europe, and like, so that ought to be more uh, persuasive. On the other hand, I've never seen anyone actually reference that table. Or those results. So, uh, how persuasive was it? Were the jurors still out? I guess. When it comes to tracking down individuals, you know, so much of what you've been doing is based on like anecdotal history. You know, we are talking about small brewing traditions. You know, very small amounts of beer being made, oftentimes in traditional ways, passed down from parents to children. Uh, you know, there is, it's, and oftentimes it's not written down, but you know, you are trying to capture these stories because a lot of the bring knowledge is, is passed down in that kind of anecdotal way where they'll mention, well, we did this with this person and this happened. You know, how, talk to me a little bit about keep like tracking that and figuring out who was doing, you know, who of their peers work, you know, as you kind of work outward, you find somebody doing something interesting, but then figuring out who else is doing those kinds of things becomes its own challenge because it's so small. This is not a giant commercial driven thing where you can go to a store and say, oh, you know, there's this thing. I mean, this, it's way easier for us in the United States with a beer magazine to see who's selling beer and they're doing it digitally and they're doing it through retail stores and distributors are selling this and the canon of beer becomes more obvious because it's commercial um and the world that you're operating in it's very it's not very commercial and it's much more based on small makers making small amounts in these traditional ways for their own consumption or the consumption 
of immediate families, figuring out who's doing what becomes a particular challenge. Yeah, it does. Um, farmhouse brewers where originally they were all home brewers, um, brewing for the household. And even today, I think way, way, way below 1% of them are commercial. So, you know, with commercial breweries, there's, uh, there are registries, you know, you, you can, you can ask the authorities who has a food, food safety authority uh, or approval to make beer, but with the farmhouse brewers, that's, that's really, really hard. So it's always, the challenge is always breaking into a new region. Once, once, you know, like a few brewers in one region, they can tell you the others. It's, it's kind of getting over the hurdle and finding the first one that that's the hard bit. And even in my own home country, um, you know, the, the county of Voss has uh, maybe 30, maybe 50 brewers. But, <laughs> but finding them was, was uh, it took us months and months and months, basically. Uh, you know, when you start out, you just try every single opening that you can just possibly think of. Like, uh, you know, tourism office, if somebody runs a bar, if there's a homebrew store, just contact everybody. Contact the museum. Just keep going and going and going. And uh, usually you find somebody in the end. But uh, like when I was going to Gotland, there were lots of people who knew lots of brewers, but they didn't want to. Uh, they didn't want to pinpoint one person. Apparently, because I guess because they didn't want you know. Oh, so this guy is bothering me because you gave me his number. I was like, ah. Oh. So we <laughs> we were two people who were trying to find people in Gotland at the same time, me and uh, Mikko Leitinen, separately. And we were, you know, calling these numbers, and and Mika in the end gave up, uh, and I I decided I was going to do one more call, and the guy goes, oh yeah yeah yeah, I was in Spain for a month and. Oh, my email wasn't working, and but yeah, yeah, sure, you can come. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah, no problem. But it was <laughs> it was months of work to get there. Now it's easier. It's fascinating to to look at just how much work you've had to put in to building that, and then uh, you know. But it's also fascinating to now look at the impact of that work that the work that you have done on farmhouse brewing, particularly in Norway, has led to a broader commercial rediscovery of, or I guess it's not necessarily rediscovery, it is a commercial awakening about this entire family of, of yeast that's been used by those brewers. And it's having an interesting global impact on the entire world of brewing as a result. And it all started from chasing down these leads on, you know, some small scale farmhouse brewers. That's absolutely fascinating. I want to talk more about that, but before we do, a brewery might have 99 problems, but your fruit supplier shouldn't be one. Old Orchard is already known for their quality concentrates, but they also pride themselves on consistent product and reliable supply. When brewers need assistance, Old Orchard is just an email, phone call, or even a text away based in Greater Grand Rapids, Michigan, better known as Beer City USA, Old Orchard is core to the brewing community. To join their fruit family, learn more at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, are you ready to brew like a pro? Pro Brew has the equipment, systems, and technology to take your brewery production to the next level. Check out www.probrew.com. 
for pro-carb inline carbonation technology, pro-fill rotary filling and seaming can fillers, the Alchemator inline alcohol separation system, 7 to 50 barrel brew houses, and more. ProBrew offers the craft beer industry innovative solutions to help you brew like a pro. Go to www.probrew.com for more information. So let's talk about, uh, in, in particular, this Norwegian farmhouse brewing tr- tradition, and let's get it out of the way first. How, how do you pronounce the family of, of yeast? Kvike. Uh, Kvike. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about exploring that. Now, you know, obviously, if, if your foray into farmhouse brewing was kicked off by this experience in Lithuania, you then quickly brought it back home and started looking in your own backyard. Uh, talk to me about that, that kind of those early forays, and then uh, what you began to discover as you dug deeper into this Norwegian farmhouse tradition. So after I did that tour in Lithuania, I, I came home and I thought, well, we have something like this in Norway too. Uh, because Norwegian uh, beer enthusiasts had sort of been aware that there was some sort of brewing in the countryside, but nobody had really cared about it, which in retrospect seems incredibly dumb, but that's the way it was. Um, And so I thought, okay, I want to look at this. Um, And then, of course, you have this issue, well, I know nobody, and... How do I convince them, like, for, to let you know, let me into their homes with their camera and a notebook? At that point, I was a completely unknown beer enthusiast with a tiny blog, right? So I teamed up with um, a Canadian beer journalist uh, Martin Thibault. He'd already done a trip to Lithuania, and I, I knew him a little bit. Um, so we came up with this uh, this idea of doing a one week tour of Norway to see what we could find. And the first stop was Voss, where uh, when we started preparing, we heard about Kvike, uh, but we, the only thing that we could learn about it was that these brewers had their own yeast. That's it. Uh, there, there was absolutely nothing more. Yeah, it took us months and months to find a brewer. And when we did, it was actually by chance. I'd been invited to another brew session and I posted about it on Reddit and on the blog, of course. And there was this guy in the comments like, oh, yeah, yeah, my uh, my best friend's dad, he, he brews like this and he's got his own yeast. And I'm like, um, could we like uh, visit you? And he's like, well, you know, it's not very special. A lot of people here do like, yeah, but uh, could we? And he was like, OK, I'll ask. And then uh, they said, yes, uh, but you'll have to stay here 24 hours because of how the brewing process is. And so we, we set up a lot of this trip around just that. Martin bought tickets from, from Canada to Norway, just on the strength of this, you know, this promise from this guy whose name we didn't even know. But he came through. You know, this was Sigmund Jarnes, who's, who's quite kissed now all over the world. Um, and that was, that was the beginning. Um, and that... That trip, when we finally got to see uh, the tradition up close in a number of different places, so we got some sense of the variety and, and what was going on, and we got to see some of the things that uh, hadn't really received any attention before, like drinking vessels, people drinking out of wooden beer bowls with horse head handles and all of this stuff. 
it, it was mind blowing. So on the on the last day when we were visiting the last brewer, I I noticed that I have almost no notes because we were just shattered. We couldn't absorb more information. It was it was just too much. Uh, and and afterwards, Martin's comment to me was. You know, this isn't exactly the Congo. Like, how could this be unknown? And I was like, well, I don't know. It just was. As you're going through this with these small farmhouse brewers, at what point did you realize that there is something really special happening with fermentation and the way that they're doing it? Um, I mean, they're you initially get into it and you're intrigued by this historical process. You know, there are a lot of brewing over open fires, you know, in, in metal kettles, traditional, interesting old processes there, but discovering this, the fermentation approach had to be a really interesting thing coming from a brewing perspective for you. Yeah, the the uh, the first intimation that there was something special there came from this guy in Lithuania who who had his own yeast, but he um, was very clear that he would not talk about that. So he said, "We we can talk about my house, we can talk about my gun, we can talk about my wife, we will not talk about my yeast." In, part, in fact, the only person in the family who was even allowed to go near it was his oldest daughter, who was going to uh, to inherit the tradition. Uh, so I knew there was, you know, it was unusual that they had their own yeast, but it was, it was that was all we knew. Uh, of course, seeing Sigmund's, you know, big mason jar full of full of yeast coming out of the fridge was like, what? That's that's the moment when you realize it's real. They're not making it up; it's real. Um, but it was really the moment when. Uh, he was ready to pitch the yeast, and he wrapped his fermenter in, in this insulating mat. And we're like, why are you doing this? Oh, so it won't be too cold. Too cold? Like, why are you worried about that? Uh, what's your pitch temperature? Oh, 39 degrees. I'm like, what? <laughs> 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 and I, I still remember this like you go into this daze, like what did he just say? And then while you're kind of still in shock, he goes, uh, my brother measured the temperature during fermentation to 42. It's like, is, 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 do you feel better now? Like, no, I don't. Uh, and, and yeah, it just never got any better from there or any worse. I mean, uh, to me then, I was interested in things that were different. If I came back from this trip and I and had to report it, yeah, these guys do the same things as everybody else, and it's just like normal home brewing. Uh, the trip would be kind of a waste, right? Yeah, and then, but you did find that a lot were doing that in a similar kind of way. Um, um, there were some that were, you know, they were okay. They were buying the malts and they were buying the yeast and the hops. And they were doing infusion mash and boiling for an hour, but that was almost the only similarity. Um, like you couldn't ask them what's the you know what's the original gravity. They don't even know what it is, um, and it's measured by taste, and and the flavors end up being completely different. And so, you know, all the equipment is totally different. The words for the equipment is totally different. So. Uh, a Norwegian home brewer who's learned to brew from books 
speaks a different terminology from the people who learned from their parents because the the uh, the farmhouse brewers know the norwegian words for this uh which the modern home brewers don't uh, so the, the 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 similarities are or or the differences are so fundamental that they're they're not really in the same kind of world of brewing at all obviously these brewers care deeply about the 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 farmhouse brewers care deeply about their yeasts and are very protective of that. Um, as you started working and talking to these farmhouse Norwegian farmhouse brewers in in different regions, how did uh, you know? I, I'm curious about that process of of how those yeasts then became part of a broader conversation and then were worked into you know, isolated, um, you know, sequenced, understood, and, you know, became a part of this, uh, this bigger piece. Now, over the last couple of years, you've had have yeast uh, companies who have done a lot of great work in trying to do this, but even figuring out who's got what, getting them to trust you to allow you to have it. I mean, that's a, there's a giant, there's a whole series of steps there. There's a lot of steps, but, um, you know, getting the yeast from them uh, is really easy uh, in Norway. It was different in Lithuania. Um, and, you know, when you, when you add yeast to the beer, after you've fermented, you have more yeast than when you started. It piles up. You can't, you can't even keep sure. all of it. And um, a lot of these people become sort of yeast suppliers to the people around them who aren't as confident about uh, keeping the culture pure. So uh, when I asked Sigmund, like, you know, can I have two little glasses of sample and I'm going to have it analyzed if I can? And he was like, yeah, yeah, sure. That was it. That was the whole conversation. <laughs> uh, and, and it's almost always like that um, in Norway. So after I got these samples from Sigmund, I brought two glasses because I wanted one for me and one for the lab. And it was actually, I think, two days later when I had the moment to spare time, just went into a store in a, in a nearby town and bought a cardboard box. And I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't thought to, you know, bring something to wrap this with. So I had to beg the people in the store for scissors and tape and something to write with. Uh, and then I just sat on the floor of the shop to wrap it up and, and send it to this lab in the UK. Uh, Earning some long stares from the locals who were like, why is this guy wrapping a package on the floor of the shop? Uh, but, you know, I, w I didn't want to wait because what if it didn't survive the trip home? I didn't know that this stuff was, was as durable as, it, as we la later learned. And then it was a slow process from there getting, you know, you send it to one lab. They give you a little bit of information. You're like, OK, you try somebody else get a little bit of information, um, manage to convince somebody to sell it, start sharing it to home brewers. They get excited. They start sharing with each other. And then the thing just, you know, took off from there. Um, later, we've tried to be more professional and, you know, give people a very, very simple form where they can say, is it okay that we do research? Is it okay that we share it with, you know, other brewers? okay the labs sell it and they can decide what they want to what they want to check uh and now it's kind of pointless to give sigmund a form like that because you know it's out of our hands we've, we've lost control um 
but it was only really with the the collaboration with Richard Priest that we that we really made progress on 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 learning what this is, um, which again was uh, a stroke of almost unimaginable luck. So I collected this yeast in 2014, the first comprehensive overview of uh, what beer yeast, types of beer yeast there are in the world was published two years later. And then Richard was able to slot his work into that. So if it wasn't for, you know, the, the amazing program. That was, that, that was the genetic study where they looked at the family of, of yeast and connections between them. That's it's right. Beautiful kind that's of right. circular graph. Yeah. Yes. That's where we learned that the quake belongs to the beer one family, like uh, most British uh, ale yeast, for example. Um, and, and Richard, but is Escarpment Labs is his business. That's right. That's his business. This yeah. was a collaboration between Escarpment Labs and uh, University of Guelph and also a Finnish research institute called uh, VTT. But it was, it was really, you know, if I'd done this like 10 years before, interesting yeast has interesting properties. We don't know what it is. Um, so so that, was, that was really, really lucky. The, the timing was just right with other scholarship and how this was able to slot into that. Yeah. yeah, and I think also perhaps with the beer community at large who were kind of over the initial excitement of, wow, there is something other than pale lager and then there, you know, the initial IPA hype. And there were, people were kind of open for, for new ideas at that point, which I think also 10 years before, that would have been a much harder slog. And... Michael Jackson kind of, uh, he wrote about this in, in 1995 and, you know, that went nowhere. It wasn't because he couldn't, you know, make people excited about it. It's just people weren't ready. Sure. Sure. No. And I, I remember you put together a trip at one point for beer journalists and, uh, the number of pitches that we received was, uh, was fantastic after that. But Martin Cornell wrote a, wrote a feature on that for craft beer and brewing magazine. Um, and we published Joe Stang's photos, I believe of that, uh, of that trip. And, uh, you know, and so, right. It was interesting to see how that information started filtering out into the world, um, through our channel and through other, other media channels in, in the brewing and beer world. Um, you know, but yeah, interesting how it has become a thing and how we went from that exploring this historical tradition to now breweries all over the world <laughs> using propagated uh, versions of, uh, of of yeasts like Sigmund's. Uh, in that sense, as you go back and talk to Sigmund now, how do, how do some of these Norwegian farmhouse brewers feel about the fact that the yeast that was part of their small scale, let's make some, you know, homebrew scale batches and are, uh, you know, over a fire and, and are, uh, you know, farmhouse brewery. Like, how do, how do they feel that there are now commercial breweries throwing quite yeast into 200 barrel tanks and bring with it on a production commercial scale? Yeah, when I, uh, when I go back and talk to Sigmund now, he's, I would say, proud and happy. Uh, really. You know, he was he was doing this to himself and, you know, some people in the local community. And I think I think he was aware that this was something rare and important and, and precious. Um, and so for that to be recognized, I think, was important for him. And, and for these brewers in general, they were not necessarily very highly regarded, you know, 
Uh, it was more the other way around almost. These guys are old fashioned. They don't, you know, they know no science. They have having a clue what they're doing. They're not, they're not even buying the yeast. Um, and so this is a vindication for them. Although in some cases, uh, the second person that I collected from, he had stopped using Quake uh, because, you know, he'd, he'd read the textbooks and I said, you shouldn't be doing this thing. So he'd stopped. And, and now he's kind of bemused by this. Like he went through this, you know, big personal process uh, to learn modern brewing and to try to, you know, teach other farmhouse brewers as he saw it to, to, to lift them up to a higher technical level. And now this, this thing that he was leaving behind is becoming, he's becoming famous for the thing that he was trying to get out of. Um, so he comes to this farmhouse ale festival and he looks at all this excitement and, you know, one of the commercial breweries uh, gives him like a couple of cans and, ooh, we brewed this with your yeast. And he's like, yeah, this is, this is kind of great, I think. So uh, they they all have different attitudes to it, and they but most yeah. of them are are happy that they're getting recognition. I think that's the way to put it. It's fantastic, and it's such an interesting thing if we think about you know promoting biodiversity, even among yeasts and brewing traditions. That uh, even if we don't know how important some of these things might be now, they could potentially be that much more important in the future. Uh, and this is certainly an example of that. I want to talk about some of the, you know, kind of peculiarities of uh yeast and some of the, the different variances that you have found as uh, you know, you know, between some of these different families, because even though they are in a similar family, there are definitely different expressions that have kind of evolved down their own special trees. Before we do that, this episode is brought to you by Mountain Rose Herbs, purveyors of the highest quality organic herbs, spices, and teas. Whether you want to add depth to your next golden triple with classic notes of cinnamon, pepper, and clove, or artfully layer exotic zesty grains of paradise into a perfect ale, Adding botanicals to your brewing is an easy way to customize a delicious flavor profile. Mountain Rose Herbs has been providing organic herbs and spices to chefs, herbalists, and dedicated brewers for more than three decades. Learn more at mountainroseherbs.com and get 10% off any and all orders with the code CRAFTBEER10. Also, as a brewery owner, you know how important it is to keep your machines running so you don't have to deal with the hassle caused by contamination, recalls, and downtime. Clarion makes food-grade lubricants to protect your equipment from the wear and tear that results in breakdowns that cut into your bottom line. Clarion gives you peace of mind so you can focus on what you do best, pouring out great-tasting beverages. Learn more at www.clarionlubricants.com. So for for American brewers in particular, there are companies that are like like Omega and others that are producing and pitches of these quake yeasts. And there are marketing, you know, there are explanations of flavor profiles, how they operate. The bench testing has been pretty good. So people have a broader idea about how these are probably going to work. But then at the same time, you know, we I believe you know we build a standard idea about how these things are out of this even bigger kind of pool of potential, uh, you know, and those yeasts that make it into the kind of commercial propagation and release are not necessarily those are not necessarily the entire example of those families of yeast. Those are the ones that can also be commercially propagated because 
they are suited for that kind of thing. Um, but there's more yeast out there, certainly. Um, that some that some that may work in different or smaller or quirkier ways for smaller brewers. Um, I'm I'm curious again for you because you've dug so deeply into this. Let's talk about some of the more interesting uh, yeasts in this broader family. Um, you know, and some of the the ones that operate in more quirky ways. Yeah. So uh, if we talk about uh, farmhouse yeast in general, uh, and, and not just crack, then uh, you have the Russian ones, you have the Lithuanian ones, you have the Latvian ones. Uh, then there is crack from Western Norway, and then there are some uh, cultures from Eastern Norway which are not crack; they are different. Um, all farmhouse yeast have some uh, common things like uh, fermenting fast, uh, handling high temperatures and so on. Um, but other than that, they can be very, very different from each other. Um, and some are hybrids and some, some are not and so on. So it's a, yeah. and even if we look at just quite when you say high, when you say hybrid, what do you mean by that? So a hybrid is when you have uh, yeasts from two different species mating and uh they form a new yeast that has you know a mix of the genes so lager yeast is the the, the best known example of that but there's yeah there's other hybrids as well sometimes you get like a okay. tri- triple hybrid even so uh, uh, and and to speak to this thing about variation so we've collected 35 quite cultures uh, this is something that people really tend to mess up. You you didn't, but people always always mess this up. Uh, so we, you know, I collect sludge from a from a from a brewer. That's a culture, and then it gets analyzed and it gets broken into strains. And and sometimes it's two, sometimes it's three, sometimes it's eight. Uh, but that's with relatively simple methods. So when uh, Carlsberg analyzed because them, these cultures. These cultures are generally multiple yeasts operating in a symbiotic kind of relationship with the, with each other. They are kind of mixed cultures, if you yeah, if you will, yeah, they um, are. even if they yeah. So the the, the thing is that uh, this this stuff is never seen a lab, right? So uh, the yeasts will mutate; they will drift apart. Exactly the same thing that we're seeing now with with COVID variants basically. Um, and then, you know, sometimes they, they, uh, the brewers will mix two cultures and then, you know, that makes it more complicated. Um, and so in, in the case of Carlsberg, they analyzed one culture and they found 42 strains in a single one. Uh, and then when you have 35 cultures, there is overlap, but it's like, um, if you've tried two quakes, you're not, you're not done. Let's put it that way. Um, and they have had time to become quite different from each other. So some of them are uh, very flavor neutral. Uh, there's a very small percentage that's phenolic. Uh, you have then you have you know, orange flavor. You have plums and cognac. You have more like banana, melon flavors. Uh, some make pineapple flavor, so it's kind of it's all over the the place. Um, but none of the cracks are diastatic; uh, they're all fast fermenters. They all handle high temperatures. They can all be dried. And yet, there's there's none of them are SDA positive. Uh, no, none of them are. 
Uh, STA huh. positivity is really rare, uh, and and generally you only see it in the beer two family, and even there it's quite rare. Um, I'm not really sure why that is, but but yeah. So there is this belief that wild yeast is is diastatic, for example, but that's not the case. So it's it seems hmm. to be specifically saison yeists and a few others, uh, and weirdly, one of the Lithuanian hybrids is is diastatic. The Uvari yeast. Oh, that's interesting. Um, these cultures that brewers are using as they move into a commercial sphere, keeping the balance of those becomes its own interesting challenge. Um, uh, you know, though they've those cultures have developed in the kind of in those mason jars and maintained that their own kind of balance, and over time they. They, you know, they, as all living things do, they hit a stasis where they maintain because other things that can't be maintained in that won't last. But in a commercial kind of environment, maintaining a culture that has that many different components um, is also really, really difficult. Um, explain to me how some of these commercial labs are able to then take those cultures? Are they isolating out specific yeasts in the cultures and then simply pushing those specific yeasts from the cultures out into the commercial world? Or are they maintaining this mixed culture of, uh, you know, as that might've been used by a farmhouse brewer? Um, so what they're doing is actually Basically the same thing that uh, Emil Christian Hansen did back in 1883 when he was the first to, to break down a yeast culture into separate strains. So what you do is you, you come up with some way of uh, separating the cells and then growing them you know, one by one. Typically they do it on a, on this, on a Petri dish, basically. And you, you see them growing on this gel. You pick some that look like they're different from each other and then you try them out. Right? You just experiment with them and see how they ferment. And then what a yeast lab will do is it will say, well, we like this one. So we'll, we'll, we'll sell that one. It behaves the way that we want you know, a practical yeast to, to behave. Um, and then so in almost all cases, what you end up buying commercially is one of the strains and not the full culture. And the reason is basically that everyone has followed this track that Emil Christian Hansen laid down 140 years ago where you break apart the strains and you use them separately and nobody really knows how to do anything else <laughs> which is kind yeah. of a, an interesting thought when you when you so um uh there is a norwegian uh, gypsy brewery that uses the uh, proof to brew a traditional norwegian farmhouse ale uh with the crack and the proof in Belgium has, has broken this down into 17 separate strains. And they actually uh, have developed some sort of method to produce a consistent mix for each brew. But uh, it's a commercial secret that the proof holds. Nobody knows how they do it. Um, in Norway, there was a <laughs> yeah. commercial brewery that did a very successful raw ale. They brought out the second batch. And I thought crack flavor wasn't as nice in, in that one. The, the, the pineapple flavor was gone. I called the brewer this and he says, 
Yeah, we used the full culture for the first one and commercial isolates for the second one. In terms of uh, f- uh, you know flavor and expression, what are what do you personally find most interesting amongst some of these quite yeast cultures? Hmm, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Um, it's it's almost and th- while these aren't your children, they are your adopted children in some yes. broader <laughs> metaphor because you've helped you know bring some of or, you know share these or facilitate sharing them with the world. It's hard to choose between them, but uh, it, you know, f- from a sensory perspective, what do you find resonating with you? I, I like the uh, I like the clean, fruity flavor that that they give. I mean, that's that's really um, the aspect that I enjoy the most. And like this full horn in the whole, uh, culture, when you get the you get the fruity flavors, and then these little kind of subtle flashes of pineapple shining through that that's that's really really nice um, but there's a lot of them that are nice so it's it's like you said it's kind of hard to single out one and for some sorts of beers it, that's not what you want right so it's also the question of which beer you're making sure sure as as we talked about earlier understanding what these yeasts are and the language and the cultures are and you know as different from the yeasts is important it's also important to understand that the beers are not the yeasts, that oftentimes we will, in brewing parlance, talk about a beer being a lager. But in the sense of these farmhouse yeasts and, and quike in particular, you don't speak about a beer being a quike. You speak about it being a Norwegian farmhouse beer or Norwegian raw ale or this other thing, and it is made with yeast of this family. Uh, you know, talk to me about parsing out that kind of difference in language. Yeah, I think I think you've made a good point there about the lager, that people are used to uh, the class of beer and the yeast being the same. So you say, oh, this is a saison yeast, and it's used in saison beer. Yeah, because, I mean... What else would you call it than saison yeast? It's, it's the yeast that's typical of saison beer. But uh, in this case, um, quake is used in two styles of beer. So then it doesn't quite work. But that's kind of the same as lager in a way. Because uh, a pilsner is a lager, but lager is not the same as pilsner, right? Um, but in, in, in this case... Um, if you yeah, if you go to one of these brewers and you say, "Could you give me some quake?" They're going to give you dried chips. Uh, they it's it's not the beer; it's just just the way it is. Uh, and what seems to have happened um, is that in Vos, for example, uh, the local dialect word for for yeast was quake. So all yeast was quake, but of course the only yeast they had was was the local form, right? And then. Um, Modernity happens, and suddenly uh, there are shops, and then within the shops there is yeast. But of course, um, it's not the dialect word that gets printed on most labels. Uh, it's a standard Norwegian word, yad. Uh, and so they, t- these were clearly two different things, and so they used two different words for them. They, uh, their dialect word, kind of switched to meaning their own yeast and standard yeast was this other word and so i guess what happened is they actually ha- ended up with a name for their yeast which hasn't really been normal 
you, but other people haven't had the same need for it, I suppose. Sure, sure. Um, talk to me about some of the specific beers then that Norwegian farmhouse brewers make with these yeasts. Yeah, so it's it's really two styles, and um, if you look at the map of Norway, there's uh, Western Norway north of the Great Glacier and south of it. So north of it, uh, they make what's called kornöl, uh, where you don't boil the wort. So fairly pale grist, infusion mash, uh, juniper infusion, uh, no boil, very little hops, and then uh, quite for fermentation very low carbonation. If you go south of the glacier, it's very similar, uh, except that the grist is now often paler uh, and the boil can be two to four hours. So in, in the case of Voss, they really, they use Pilsner malt and then they darken it with, uh, with a long boil. It's very, very easy to tell these two uh, styles of beer apart. Um, but they, you know, there's a clear uh, family resemblance because of the similarity in process, similarity in yeast, and other ingredients as well. How does then? How do these broader styles then break out into individual expressions from brewery to brewery? Yeah, it's like um, the first farmhouse brewer I ever brewed with. Uh, he said that you know this is like your granny making making meatballs, right? She learned some recipe and, and she's maybe changed it a bit. And, you know, if you go next door, they'll also make meatballs. No, look similar, but it won't be the same. And it's really the, the same thing here, that there's all these little variations that were some are due to just randomly who was your dad. Uh, and some are you changed the process because you want to make the beer in a different way or you're adapting it to your brew kit and so on. So... Uh, in the case of, of Kornel, for example, uh, in, in Hornindal, some of the brewers will um, uh, louter the, the wort through a bag of hops, and that's, that's how they add the hops, and that's it. Uh, others make mm. hop tea, or some take uh, a bit of the wort, like a liter or two, and they boil the, wort, the hops in that, and then they pour it back. And so here a liter is then one out of 150 liters. So it's not, it's still a royal, I would say. Um, and there's always like these little, like you go a little bit north and suddenly at the bottom of the Lauterton is uh, older branches, which add uh, tannins actually, astringency to the beer mm. and also color and a bit of, a bit of flavor. So th there is variation, and, and it's almost endless. I, that's, I talked about getting hold of these 182 documents describing how people brewed. Um, reading, that's why I had to do a database, because you read the first one, it goes, okay, so you didn't use uniform infusion, but you used it in a filter. Okay, that's fine. You got the next one. Oh, you used uniform infusion. Okay, yeah. Oh, older branches. Ah, okay, and straw. No juniper. Okay, yeah, well, whatever. And they were all contradicting each other. They were like totally. So uh, it takes a bit of effort to kind of figure out what the commonalities are. It's, it's fascinating to think about that kind of process, mapping that and having to do it in that database format to figure that out. But that is, I mean, it's the same as early brewing everywhere that, 
you know, what we have in terms of well-known brewing traditions in, uh, you know, Belgium or Germany or Czechoslovakia or sorry, Czech Republic or England and Scotland for that matter are, are just the results of this evolutionary process where things have over time, it, you know, it, earlier on, it was all that diverse. And I imagine that you could still find a lot of those smaller differing processes in a lot of those places where beer is made in small ways, even if there's this prevailing idea about how it's all made now. You know, this process of standardization and homogenization naturally happens in an industrialized economy as we decide to push towards economies of scale and, and you know, standardized production and whatnot. And there are certainly benefits to that looking at it on a commercial element. But, uh, you know, this kind of breadth that happens in the equivalent of, of local homebrewing and these small beer cultures that exist in, in tiny ways um, creates this kind of breadth. And, uh, you know, and so even this mainstream uh, of, the, of scholarship ideas and, uh, you know, brewing knowledge doesn't explain the complete picture. It's been fascinating to see how you've, again, shown more of that diversity and how, uh, you know, that manifests itself in places that are not necessarily as well known for those kinds of brewing traditions. Talk talk to me about some of the, uh, uh, you know, other, you mentioned Russian brewers. I'm curious about this, you know, again, Ru- Russian historical brewing is not something that figures into our broader idea of brewing history. Um, you know, especially as we think about the stories that get passed down, we think about Russian imperial stout being made in England and shipped to Russia, uh, you know, because they didn't necessarily have it in that kind of homegrown, you know, brewing tradition. Obviously, these are myths. They don't necessarily describe all the the, the truths or historical realities on these things, um, you know. And a lot of the stories that get passed down as history are just that they are stories, and not actual history. Um, but but I'm curious about about that. Shine some light for us on some of these overlooked brewing traditions that uh, certainly were more impactful than his, history might or our brewing history might give them credit for. Yeah. So. Um... The starting point is that everybody used to be farmers and, you know, when you grow your own grain, you make your own bread because, you know, you have the raw materials and it was the same with beer. Uh, it was it was literally the same with beer. So uh, it was really industrialization and uh, that somehow made this end up with, you know, three countries having the only commercial brewing traditions that everybody else copies. But. There was commercial brewing of local styles pretty much everywhere, uh, but it was it was just killed by the standardization. Uh, and, and lager brewing did most of that job, I would say. So there are historical accounts of uh, people brewing uh, stone beer in Moscow for commercial sale, for example, in the 17th century, uh, which had nothing to do with, with the Franconian Stein beer, which doesn't exist anyway, which is what we, I uh, just wrote <laughs> for style school about. Um, but you'll have to, Shameless you'll have to read promotion. The well, read the magazine. <laughs> naturally, I would say. Um, so, in uh, I don't have the full picture of Russian farmhouse brewing. Um, there is a slight language barrier, as you might expect. Uh, Russian ethnographic institutions haven't proved super easy to communicate with. 
um, partly for the same reason. Um, but I have managed to collect some material, and, and um, it's clear that there is one group of stone brewers. Um, there is also people who brew in a, in a way that's closer to what we're used to. Uh, and then you have the people who... Uh, basically, their brewing revolves around the Russian oven, the pietchka. Uh, and you can't really talk about this without explaining what it is. So the standard Russian peasant hut, the izba, is built around uh, the oven. And the oven is yeah, two meters high, maybe four meters long, a meter and a half wide. It's a huge brick monstrosity. Um, but the purpose of it is that uh, it's built so that you can imagine that at, uh, you know, the height of your hips, there is what looks like a, a pizza oven opening into it. And usually there's, a, there's another opening as well, so you can heat the surface of this pizza opening from below. Um, and then uh, the hot air goes through lots of channels. So this is a super effective type of oven. Um, people tell me that when it's minus 20 outside, uh, you might fire it, you know, twice a week. <laughs> because, but you, of course, you you need a, a good amount of wood to get it heated. But when it's heated, it's heated. Uh, and they and it holds that heat, sure. Yeah, they use this for the mashing. And in fact, um, a lot of standard Russian cuisine is based around the oven. So there's less of this frying uh, methods that we are used to, and instead you you leave something to stew in the oven. Um, but it, it, it's typical to, to have a very long uh, mash in the oven. And one of the brewers uh, showed me this method where he had a, a ceramic lauterton that he puts straw in the bottom, puts in cold water and, and crushed malts, shoves the whole thing in the oven, comes back next morning and just removes the plug at the bottom. There's his work. Super huh. uh, simple and so he boils, but I think historically they did not. Very different approach to brewing. And and the Lithuanian style that's called keptinis, uh, where you bake the mash in a much drier form, I think comes from the same thing. Uh, the same thing actually the Steinbeer comes from, which is you don't have a metal kettle. You need to mash. You've got to heat the mash somehow. One way is to dump hot stones into it. The other way is... Well, just shove it in the oven. <laughs> sure, sure. We're getting on in time here. It's been fascinating to talk about this. Um, you know, as we have engaged in our own scholarship and coverage, it we've uncovered. I mean, when we think about the history of, of farmhouse traditions, you know, what we had known as farmhouse brewing being defined by north, uh, like Northern Europe you know, the Belgium, France, Germany, et cetera, has certainly grown as a result of the work that you've been doing and the writing that you've put out there, both on the blog and in the book. Our idea of, of all of these traditions has continued to expand. The world of farmhouse brewing is even larger than that if you consider that farmhouse brewing, you know, in that kind of beer tradition has happened everywhere from China and Southeast Asia. Um, there are lots of different spontaneous brewing traditions in Africa um, and various beers, South America. You know, this this world of farmhouse brewing is actually a huge global thing, even 
bigger than the expanded world that you've presented in your own book. There is an infinite amount of additional scholarship that can and should be done to help document all of these broader traditions that uh, are also very local. Um, it's a really a beautiful thing. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I had to draw the line basically at Europe. Like it would kill me if I was going to try to cover the world. Sure. Um, but uh, Martin Thibault, uh, the guy that I did the, the trip to Norway with in 2014, uh, he has been studying, you know, Ethiopia and uh, Bhutan, Nepal, um, Peru, Bolivia, and so on. Um, he even went to South Korea. So he really has been doing a lot of that work. And, and I'm really sad that, that that hasn't received more attention. But maybe maybe it was too exotic and people were, weren't ready for it. Maybe Maybe people are getting more ready now. At least I hope so. It sounds like we need to do another episode of the podcast. Oh, yeah, you should. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me know and I'll, I'll put you in touch. For sure. For sure. Um, no, no, we love exploring this because, you know, the, the world of beer is is that big. And we've had some beautiful stories in the past and that in the magazine um, on you know traditional brewing techniques in Africa. Um, and it's important, I think, for all of us to understand that this just happened is ha- happens everywhere on that small kind of farmhouse level and there's things for us to learn from all of those traditions oh, everywhere yeah. that they oh, are yeah. yeah well Lars thanks for joining me on the podcast G&D's micro channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions explore a universe of sensory with hops from BSG Old Orchard pride themselves on consistent product and reliable supply. Brew like a pro with equipment from Pro Brew. Get 10% off your next order from Mountain Rose Herbs with code CRAFTBEER10 and make your system 100% food safe with Clarion Lubricants. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com. Click on the subscribe button. We bring you great content from folks like Lars. And if you want to read in our February-March issue his article on Steinbeer traditions, then uh, you'll you'll have to subscribe. And I encourage you to go to beerandbrewing.com and hit that subscribe button right now. Our all-access subscriptions bundle magazines with exclusive digital content plus some video classes. You can't find this quality of content anywhere else so we would appreciate your support and appreciate your you know, that support makes it possible for us to bring you great conversations with folks like Lars um, Lars the people want to learn more about what you do where do they find you uh, I guess you can google uh, Lars blog uh, and find my blog that way it's very imaginatively named so it's easy to remember <laughs> and your book historical brewing is out from Brewers publications yeah came out last year um, that has a lot of this stuff. There's there's the story of visiting uh, Russian farmhouse brewers, Lithuanian ones, uh, brewing with the oven, how all of these brewing processes um, developed, maps of the different techniques and ingredients, and yeah, all of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. It is a must read for anyone interested in these farmhouse brewing traditions. Well, Lars, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Cheers. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.